You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, produced by Angelus Press. This week, we start our Crisis in the Church series with Episode 1, Is There a Crisis? We spoke with Father John McFarland, the prior of Our Lady of Sorrows in Phoenix, Arizona, about the effects, the symptoms of this crisis, and how we can judge it against the other trials faced by the Church throughout her history. This is the first episode of almost two dozen, which will be released regularly over the coming months. We invite you to subscribe to the SSPX podcast in your podcast app or feed and our YouTube account so that you'll always have the most recent episode. You'll also be able to see this podcast as a video with all of the statistics we speak about and some relevant video and images. You can see this video at sspxpodcast.com or on the SSPX News YouTube account and on the SSPX News Facebook page. And if you have specific questions about the crisis in the church as a whole, feel free to ask them. Just visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, and we'll do our best to answer them in an upcoming episode. Now, here's our conversation with Father McFarland. Well, Father McFarland, thank you for joining us for this first episode of the Crisis in the Church series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube account. How are you doing today, Father? I'm doing well. Thank you, Andrew. Good, good. Well, uh, before we start with a whole series about the crisis in the church, we have to start from the very beginning and discuss whether or not there is a crisis at all. And I guess, what do we mean when we say crisis? So uh, I guess I'm going to start out with the obvious question. Is there a crisis in the church? Uh, undoubtedly, and I think probably most people who are going to be watching an SSPX podcast on the crisis <laughs> in the church have some sense that there is, otherwise they wouldn't uh, wouldn't bother. Um, sure. I think for for most people um, that are going to be watching, you know, they're they they've encountered the manifestations of that crisis in their own life, and they're they're looking for for answers on some level, um, mm-hmm. or being aware of some of the answers, or trying to to go deeper. Um, so there is, you know, there in certain quarters they do, there is denial uh, of the crisis. Um, and I think you either find that among people who are just entirely ignorant. They don't know anything about what the church was like, uh, before the second Vatican council, they have no point of comparison, uh, from which to work. So they are unable to, to recognize that there is a crisis. Uh, and then there are those who, really want everything to uh, to be fine, either the progressives who prefer the current chaos to the normal functioning of the church, who don't want the old thing at all, who, who want to um, break down the church's traditions and reform according to their own pleasure and, and prejudices. And then you have those conservative elements who think that if we're going to salvage the notions of the church or of papal infallibility and so on, that we have to, to say that, no, it's not really a crisis, Fundamentally, everything is fine. There might be some some abuses, some particular problems, but there is there's no deeply rooted crisis afflicting the church right now. Okay. And I would so say, so it's go ahead. And I also say that there are fewer and fewer of these people because it's harder to kid yourself these days with uh, with Pope Francis and everything that he's done uh, in right. the church during his pontificate. Yeah, it's 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 increasingly. I mean, if if you are intellectually honest. It's harder and harder to make that that distinction, and that's kind of what you're talking about. Conservatives, generally, you would you would assume are going to be intellectually honest, or you've got the progressives who are just not. Uh, right. And and that that group of of conservatives who are able to say, uh, no, there's not really a crisis. It's just you know infallibility. It's fine. Right. That's 
yeah, it's, it's winnowing, definitely. Uh, as we are going through this crisis, you know, here in 2020, are there have there been crises in the in the church before? I mean, we all know about uh, the time of Saint Athanasius. That was, you know, basically one man against the rest of of the church, so to speak. Um, but beyond that, have there been other crises in the church? Oh, certainly of all all different sorts. You've had heresies of different degree of, uh, of how widespread they've been. You've had uh, schisms. You know, of course, the, the Eastern Schism was a major crisis. The Great Western Schism was a tremendous crisis, a, a great scandal, uh, which we can even say contributed to the the, the Protestant Reformation, which is mm-hmm. another great crisis in the history of the church. Uh, you have the liberal Catholic crisis of the the of the 19th century. This is crises are nothing new for the church. There, there are many more that that we could talk about of, of all different sorts. Uh, right. But uh, we don't have time to go into all of them. <laughs> right. But what makes this what makes this crisis, Father, uh, different or, or unique or or distinct, or is it kind of the same as as some of the other ones we've seen? I would say the universality that we are seeing a, a complete, almost complete disruption of. The, the church's practice and the understanding of the church's doctrine. There's never been anything like that before. And also it, it's pervaded every, every level of the hierarchy. Uh, we find it in the um, course among the laity, but uh, the priests, the, the episcopacy uh, in Rome, and, and even with the popes themselves, this uh, contributions to the crisis, we can mm-hmm. say. And there's the old, there's the old adage of by by their fruits you shall know them. We can see through many different effects the uh, well the effects <laughs> what what has been happening since uh, since this all started in the church. Are there some really obvious effects that really no one could argue with? I think so, and I think that in particular the the loss of uh, of the faith at least objectively the loss of the a sense of the truths of the faith, and I think you know we all encounter that Catholics who don't believe what Catholics are supposed to believe are extremely common uh, you mm-hmm. can see, uh, in the political world right now people who call themselves Catholics who yeah. uh, don't hold any of the Catholic moral principles at all and consistently in their political life work against those Catholic moral principles so and we can give statistics you know the the uh, Pew Research Center uh, quite frequently does these polls of Catholics asking about belief in, in fundamental doctrines. And uh, in, a, in a poll they did in, in 2019, a survey, they, uh, they conclude that about one of every three Catholics who practices regularly, those who attend Mass at least once a week, uh, don't except the church's teaching about the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, which is a basic fundamental doctrine of, uh, of the Catholic Church, obviously something that's a dogma, something that we're obliged to, to hold under pain of, uh, of being in heresy. Um, so that, you know, the, they simply do not believe that, that our Lord is truly present and that it's, uh, it's merely uh, a symbolic action that represents our Lord's body and blood and, and beyond and beyond just the the belief there's massive amounts of moral issues and basically the degradation of morality even among catholics as well right again the the uh the pew research center 2015 
76% of American Catholics think that the church should allow the use of birth control. 62 think they should that priests should be allowed to marry. 62% again think that those who divorce and remarry should be allowed to receive communion. 59% think that women should be allowed to come, become priests. 46% think that the church should recognize homosexual marriage. I mean, basic true to the faith or moral principles that the uh, uh, in many cases even a majority of those who call themselves Catholic explicitly reject. Wow. And, and you've been giving some statistics on American Catholics, and obviously this is this is where we are. This is what we know uh, here in here in the states, Father. But what about internationally? Is is the picture any better, or is it worse? Or it's uh, it's comparable, I would say. And okay. Taking samplings from other surveys done in other countries, among German Catholics, forty three percent believe in the resurrection. And you know, Saint Paul says that if we if Christ be not risen from the dead, our our faith is vain. So. Why are we even bothering calling ourselves Catholics if we don't believe that? Um, right. Only about 19% of German Catholics attend Mass. And of that 19%, only 55% believe in the, the the virgin birth of our Lord. Again, a dogma. Only 44% accept papal infallibility. Again, a dogma. And that is apparently about 8% higher than the worldwide average, though. Uh, wow. France, only 12% of Catholics claim to definitely believe in hell 72 percent deny its existence outright uh, only seven percent believe that the catholic religion is the only true one and 34 percent of regularly practicing catholics in france believe that muhammad is a prophet hmm. well that's that's cheery this is just yeah. making me feel great father right <laughs> anytime uh well. <laughs> so there is a you know a serious crisis uh in uh, in belief among these these Catholics in you know well developed countries places where the church has been established for a long time we're not talking about outlying regions where they they don't have access to the information um, we're talking about wealthy countries yeah. hmm. so w- we we don't have the same the same surveys as. Uh, you know, today the Pew Research is not going to be doing the same surveys. You know, they they weren't doing these, or maybe they were, but we don't have access to those in the '40s, '50s, etc. Before a lot of this started, um, but we can we can see maybe we can correlate some data with traditional Catholics. Is there are there any sort of studies or any sort of comparable data with traditional Catholics, people who attend the traditional Latin Mass, compared to what we've just talked about? Uh, yes, you know, and some some recent surveys that have uh, that have been done on the subject. Uh, polling Catholics of, of both sorts who attend the traditional mass or attend, attend the, the Novus Ordo mass. Um, 2% of traditional last Latin mass attending Catholics approve of contraception versus 89% who attend the Novus Ordo. Not sure who those 2% are, but uh, hopefully they can <laughs> You want to find out, yeah. right, Father? <laughs> 1% of, uh, of traditional Latin mass Catholics approve of abortion compared to 51% of you know, more than half of, of those who attend the Novus Ordo Mass. 99% of traditional Latin mass Catholics say they attend mass weekly as opposed to 22% of Novus Ordo uh, attendees. 2%, and I wonder who this 2% is, but uh, of traditional Latin mass goers uh, approved of gay marriage as opposed to 67% of those who attend the Novus Ordo in these particular surveys. So there's, you know, there's a very striking difference there uh, between those who, who are attached to tradition and those who are 
um, attending the Novus Ordo Mass. And and I know this is probably speculative, Father, but but do you suppose that those numbers were probably similar to what the majority of Catholics as a whole believed in, you know, say the early 1900s, 1800s? I would say they're probably high. They're probably above even that for the, the traditional Latin mass goers. But certainly there was, you know, it, we're not, we would not have been talking about more than half of Catholics who, who believe things that are opposed to um, sure. very clear church teachings. Uh, it was interesting also uh, talking about some of the, some of the ways that we can see the actual crisis. Uh, there was a statistic uh, that the Society of St. Pius X uh, in this past year, in 2020, ordained an equal number of Irish priests as all of Ireland did. So in Ireland, there was, I believe it was zero. I, I may have to put this up on the screen if I'm forgetting it, but there, were, there I believe there were zero vo- uh, ordinations of Irish priests. Maybe it was one. And in society of St. Pius X, we had one. Um, so going along that same route, vocations, that, have, that has been a, a huge crisis just in and of itself in the last 50, 100 years. Right, and, and following Vatican II, you had a tremendous exodus from the the priesthood uh, and the religious life. The uh, the official documented number of departures between 1964 and 2004, um, it's from the the Vatican numbers, 57,580 priests left the priesthood, and that doesn't count those who didn't didn't bother with any kind of of canonical procedure or the like. Uh, and there are certain organizations that that study this and work with priests who have left the priesthood. And they give estimates that vary from 80,000 to 100,000 priests who have left the priesthood. Um, between 1965 and 2002, the number of seminarians in the U.S. decreased 90%. Right, we often hear about closing seminaries. There were there used to be just a lot more seminaries with a lot more men in them uh, than there are now. Right? And even if those numbers have perhaps picked up a little bit from their, their lowest days, they're not anywhere close to returning to... Uh, what sure. they were in, uh, in the early 20th century. Wow. And and religious life, I, I assume, is about the same? Uh, yes. You know, certainly uh, the number of sisters in the U.S. dropped from 180,000 in 1965 to, to 75,000 in 2002, uh, you know, more than, wow. than than half. And I think even just in kind of anecdotally, you know, if we talk to people of our, uh, our parents' generation and so they were who attended Catholic schools, they were all taught by religious. My father was taught by religious from, from first grade up through college uh, and uh, you know, an occasional lay person, but almost entirely religious. Um, they were the backbone of Catholic education and, and uh, there are very few left you know, attending Catholic schools uh, as I did you know, in, the, in the 1980s and 90s. We had a handful, you know, right. two or three sisters at a time in a, in a given school. For the last 10 minutes, we've been talking about a lot of statistics. We've been talking about a lot of, you know, decrease in belief. Uh, here are the actual numbers of church attendance and the number of priests. When we talk about the crisis in the church, uh, just to get kind of back to a more 30,000-foot view of all of this, uh, is this the crisis in the church? This, These people who don't believe these numbers, is this the crisis or is the crisis something different? And maybe I'm getting it way ahead of myself, maybe this episode five or six, but... Is, are these the symptoms of the crisis, or is this the crisis? What do you? What they're do you they're symptoms, but they are certainly part of the crisis too. You know, the the crisis is made worse by uh, the the unbelief of of, uh, of those who call themselves Catholic. It's made worse by the the lack of priests and religious. So it it's all 
it's a symptom, yes, but it is, it's also part of, uh, of the problem, undoubtedly. Uh, it's not the entire story, that's, that's for sure. Right. And this seems so striking. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a layman who doesn't know very much about theology or, or anything. Uh, the, the Vatican's got to know, they've got to see these same numbers. Uh, I mean, haven't the popes in the last 50 years seen this? Hasn't the Vatican, I mean, you'd think they would respond in some way. Yes, and they have, the recent popes have, have pointed out, uh, they haven't done much about it. At times, they act as if there there is no crisis, but you do have some very telling admissions that they, they've given over the years, and, and not just one pope, but but most of them since, since the council. Hmm. So Paul VI, for example, the church is in a disturbed period of self-criticism, or what would better be called self-demolition. It's a, it's a pretty strong statement that, that the church is destroying itself. Right. And and Paul, this, Paul, Paul VI, he was also the one who said that the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Is that is that a accurate quote of his? Yes. Yes. Through some secret fissure, the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God. It was believed that after the council, a sunny day in the church's history would dawn. But instead, there came a day of clouds, storms and darkness. It's June 29th, 1972. So we're not even 10 years after the council at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how much worse have things have gotten? Okay. So uh, that's Pope Paul VI. And then we move on to uh, later popes. When, when these crises are getting worse and worse and more vocations are lost, a right thinking person would say certainly they would correct things, but probably not. <laughs> right. And they, they haven't really corrected things. There have been some measures now and then in response to certain aspects of the crisis, but overall the direction has been the same. And there has been a recognition too, uh, that there's something profoundly wrong. John Paul II in 1981 said, we must admit realistically and with feelings of deep pain, heresies in the full and proper sense of the word have been spread in the area of dogma and morals. And he doesn't do a lot to respond to those heresies, but, and then towards the end of his pontificate in July of, of 2003 is his famous remark that European culture gives the impression of silent apostasy. Hmm. And Pope Benedict XVI, I mean, arguably a little bit more traditional, a little bit more conservative than than the previous popes. Um, and, and he spoke, I mean, from my own recollection, he spoke out about this crisis uh, probably a, a little bit more strongly, but again, didn't do a whole lot. Right. And um, in a only one month before his election in 2005, he compares the church to, to a boat about to sink, a boat taking in water on every side, which is a fairly so, accurate and, and, Yeah, and, and it's really striking to me, Father. I mean, again, we're talking about this, and maybe we're just making it too simple, or maybe I'm just not that smart, but <laughs> I'm just thinking, okay, obviously the, you would have to do something um, but when you and I talked a little bit ahead of time before we talked, uh, recorded this, Father, you know, you mentioned it's not just that they didn't do anything. The popes had a major role in in creating this crisis. Right. Absolutely. And uh, in acting in 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 ways that cannot be squared with with Orthodox Catholic practice, uh, praising the United Nations as Paul VI did and. Um, which is a, a Freemasonic organization with with goals that are steeped in naturalism, the denial of the supernatural, 
you have the the infamous Assisi prayer meetings of, of John Paul II and then of, of Benedict XVI as well, all the these false religions coming to uh, St. Francis's Basilica in, in Assisi to to pray together, you know, and at the first one even having the, a statue of, of, of Buddha placed on top of a tabernacle. You have, again, a famous incident of uh, John Paul II kissing the Koran mm-hmm. in, in, in the way they acted. Uh, visibly, they, they do things that are detrimental to the Catholic faith. Um, likewise, they've, they've permitted uh, those who hold heterodox opinions and, and promote them and teach them to remain in good standing. You know, for example, uh, Henri de Lubac, uh, the French Jesuit who is a, a favorite theologian of, of John Paul II, whose teaching effectively equates nature and grace, were all uh, beloved by God by the simple fact of being human. He was made a cardinal by John Paul II. Hmm. Uh, someone like the Hans Kung, the Swiss theologian, if we can even dignify him with that name. Uh, he was so off the wall that he was finally forbidden to teach, but that was the only censure. He wasn't allowed to teach. He was still permitted to function as uh, as a priest, you know, to, to preach to your confessions, um, and uh, remains a Catholic in good standing. You know, and, um, a more recent figure, James Martin, another Jesuit, you know, promoter of homosexuality. Uh, you can pretty much count on him to promote any trendy left-wing cause remains in good standing, is invited by bishops into their dioceses. You have the, 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 almost the entire German episcopate at the moment is, is flirting with open schism, their, their synodal path. Um, and what do the popes do? Nothing. If anything, they, they promote them. On the other hand, you have uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, the, the great defender of tradition, who's, who's censured and condemned for, for adhering to tradition. Right, for refusing to, to go along with the novelties. Uh, and so this is this is definitely a, a, a case of, or you tell me your five best friends, the five people that you spend the most time around, and, and that's basically a reflection of who you are. We can kind of look at that in the same way uh, with the Catholic Church. I'll show me who your friends are. The, these, these are the guys, uh, and that's basically what the Catholic Church is today. It's kind of the same analogy. Right, I think so. Um, so... This, that's all the past or, or the most recent, more recent past. Um, and then we get to today. Um, I, I've talked with a, a decent amount of conservative Catholics, not traditional Catholics, but conservative Catholics who are just shocked, shocked, I tell you, uh, that that some of these errors are happening today in the last, you know, two or three, four years, and certainly during the pontificate of Pope, Ran- Pope Francis. And they're, they're surprised that this is all happening. Um, but we really shouldn't be surprised, right? Right. And the important thing to remember is that Pope Francis didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Uh, he's, we can say, even the, the logical conclusion of what's been been going on in the church since the 1960s. And he, you know, it's not as if he, you know, rode into the papal conclave and, and forced his own election. He was right. he was appointed archbishop and cardinal by, by John Paul II. In spite of having, you know, strange ideas and strange practices, he remained in that position. Um, and it's it's impossible to even think that someone like him could have been made a, a bishop, much less be elected pope, uh, without Vatican II and the subsequent crisis having taken place. So and and the crisis has has really escalated. I mean, we we see this, but 
from from our own experiences. But what are some what are some kind of watermarks, some key points in the pontificate of Pope Francis that we can point to where this is really escalating the crisis? Right. I think on the the in a very uh, very clear way the the, the Pachamama scandal. Oh yeah. Of of last year, I think that that uh, that shook up a, a lot of people and made them realize that that something more was going on, and, and rightly so. We're talking about this this idol, this image of the Earth Mother, whatever that is, um, at the Amazon Synod, despite the fact that the idol is of Incan origin, which is in anyway. Uh, <laughs> but during the during the Synod, you know, in the Vatican Gardens on uh, October 4th in, in 2019, uh, there was a pagan ritual performed centering on the, this image, these, these idols of this Earth Mother, including people prostrating themselves, bowing down, giving visible worship to, to an idol in, in, in the Vatican Gardens with, with, you know, Pope Francis close by. Okay, um, you know, the official, the first official position of the Vatican was they denied that it ever happened, but the video was already public. Um, you know, and after the ceremony, one of the idols was, was presented to Pope Francis, who blessed it. And in return, he was given a, a pagan necklace, an offering of soil to Pacamama, and a tukum ring, which is apparently a black wooden ring with an occult spell cast on it, symbolizing uh-huh. spiritual marriage with Pacamama. And uh, it's apparently also a, taken as a symbol of liberation theology. But, um, and then the ceremony itself was only about 10 minutes long. The statues were still all over the Vatican throughout the course of the Synod. They were carried in procession and placed on the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica on October 7th, um, you know, where the Amazonians with Pope Francis and other bishops offered prayers in a circle around it. And, uh, and then others were, were set up in the church, Santa Maria Transpontina, um, from which they were famously removed and thrown in the Tiber by a layman. Um, oh, and we're talking God. about a, a clear violation of the of the first commandment, right? Right. The the offering worship to idols, you, you know, most of the time when when you're teaching people about the first commandment, you say, well, you're probably not going to be tempted to literal literal idolatry these days, but it would seem that in some places they are, right? That they're right. they're bowing down before an image of something that is is not God, is not Jesus Christ, is something pagan. Right. And, and there's no excuse that can justify it. You can't say, well, it's just hospitality to those who y- you can't do something evil for a good purpose. And is an objective evil. I mean, in the Old Testament, God is is repeatedly chastising the, the Israelites for their worship of idols. It's a it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing. There's right. no way it can be justified. And it's impossible to imagine this taking place in the pontificate of Pius the Twelfth, or Saint Pius the Tenth, or Pius the Ninth, or Pius the Fifth, or any of the popes that came between, or any of the popes that came before. You know, the popes in the early centuries of the Church died rather than even give the appearance of committing idolatry. This is the this is the obvious one. This is the this is the real break with any sort of tradition. I mean, this is again, like you said, Father, it's it's breaking the first commandment. <laughs> you can't get much more clear than that. That there is a real problem here. Uh, but this isn't the only one. This isn't this isn't like Trazer just saying, "Hey, this is the issue. We have the issue with with Pacamama here. Now we need to, you know, really rope you into uh, traditional circles." Uh, there's been a lot more, right? Right. And uh, most notably, 
Amoris Laetitia, the apostolic exhortation following the, the synods on the family in 2014 and 2015, um, which, it, you know, being a, a document and, and having that, that usual sort of weaselly modernist approach where they don't come out and say things quite as clearly, um, traditional Catholic would, you know, traditional theology would say very clearly what it meant. And, um, but still, it, it's, it's certainly putting forward the possibility of giving communion to those Catholics who are divorced and civilly remarried, which is a situation that our Lord Jesus Christ himself says constitutes adultery. And in, in chapter 19 of St. Matthew's Gospel, also chapter 5, um, and then chapter 16 of St. Luke's Gospel, uh, very clearly that you know, to put away your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. Um, and yet the, the document itself, Amoris Letizia, says that it can no longer simply be said that all those in any irregular situation are living in a state of mortal sin and are deprived of sanctifying grace. Such situations realize the far too abstract and almost artificial theological idea, ideal of marriage, far removed from the concrete situations and practical possibilities of real families in a partial and analogous way. Right? So this is, the, our Lord Jesus Christ puts forth a, a nearly impossible ideal that people can't realize. So in their ability to, their inability to realize it, then they, they're certainly not in mortal sin. Um, and in talking about what can be done for these people, the footnote to the text says, in certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, and this is quoting Pope Francis, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Right, And there's you know, deliberate ambiguity there. It's not a remedy for those who are in mortal sin. I mean, one has to, the confessional is, but the Holy Eucharist is not. One has to be in the state of grace to receive it worthily. Again, that's very clear, right? as, uh, as St. Paul um, points out, that if we if we receive the Blessed Sacrament unworthily, we're guilty of the of the body and blood of our Lord. And and it's right there in the communion prayers as well. Right after the if and correct me if I'm wrong, Father, but if right after the right after the priest uh, receives Holy Communion, he says, um, "Let this not be a judgment to my uh, condemnation, uh, but you know." It's something that helps me get to heaven. I mean, he says it right there. The the celebrant says this this could condemn me. This could be something that could send me to hell if I if I do it unworthily. And he's right. praying for that grace. You know, let me receive this worthily. It's it's there. This is not ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, and to you know to suggest that you know that nowadays the situations are impossible and we can't uh, we can't expect people to live up to that is. Is effectively denying the, you know, God's grace and and the objective reality of uh, of what's taking place. We can't say that an adulterous relationship is something good just because it might hurt people's feelings to say that it's something bad. You know, our our right. Lord Himself has told us this. Wait, right? We can't say that that Jesus Christ needs to get with the times and and realize the you know the new situations that people have to encounter. I I. Think he was was well aware of uh, of what they would be, right? And this was about four years ago. And from what I recall, the Vatican stood by it and has stood by it. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been people who have really uh, pushed for the Vatican to either clarify uh, these things or to outright scrap it, including cardinals. Is that correct? Right. 
Um, they have the, the the dubia five questions presented by Cardinal Scafaro, Bert Gramuller, and Meisner um, on September nineteenth of twenty sixteen. No response has been given to that. We also had a commission of forty five theologians review it. They condemned nineteen propositions present in the document Moris Laetitia, uh, of which they said eleven were heretical. Um, and then you had the also the group of, of forty who signed the. The, the correctio filialis, the, the filial correction sent in August of 2016. Um, and those are unprecedented right, in the history of the church, that there there be a filial correction of the Pope, that you have cardinals presenting dubia based on, uh, on a document that is, at least has the appearance of being magisterial. Right. And, and God bless them for doing that. And, and I want to take a a sidestep for, for a second, and, and again, maybe we'll be talking about this over the next uh, 10, 12 episodes or, or not, but something that's always struck me about the current pontificate is, you know, the first year or two where Pope Francis was was uh, the Pope, uh, there were many people who said, well, his statements are ambiguous because he's just, you know, he's used to just kind of speaking as a cardinal, he's not really used to speaking as a Pope, you know, give him some time, he'll kind of figure it out. Uh, but throughout the entire pontificate, we have this ambiguity where almost every time he's on a plane, <laughs> you know, there's there's statements that people are scratching their head. Well, did he mean this or did he mean this? Or interviews with, you know, his favorite interviewee or interviewer is is an atheist um, in in Italy. And there's statements where again there's that ambiguity, and we can't really defend that ambiguity like we could maybe in the first year of his pontificate. Well, I don't think you could ever defend it. Maybe early on you might try to excuse it, but it's sure it's uh. And it's common in the in the conciliar documents themselves of Vatican II and and of um, the post-conciliar magisterium. You you find this ambiguity, and it's most of the time it's deliberate. And mm. then it would be very easy to clarify what you mean, but you right. don't want that clarification because you have some some plan to make some change by means of this ambiguous statement. And so you don't really want to push it that far, but you want to kind of leave the door open and let people interpret the way they want and not do the hard work. Right. And we and, and then we just sort of move the ball gradually down the field. Right. By getting people used to an ambiguous formulation and they say, well, okay, that previous document also said it and and so on. And, and you build um, on these these ambiguous statements to, to justify ultimately whatever it is you happen to feel like doing. Sure. So the Society of St. Pius X has stood up for years um, since its founding, and Archbishop Lefebvre did uh, against these, against this crisis. And and you know we're again we're talking about all these things that have happened since uh, since Vatican II, um, and the SSPX has stood up against it. And now there are other traditional groups that are standing up against it as well, um, but not a whole lot of outcry or defense of truth and tradition from the conciliar church from within the church. Why do you think that is? Is it, are, are people scared? Are, are archbishops and cardinals scared or are they just along for the ride or? Well, I think it, it's, and, and I know it's, I'm asking you to put motives in people's heads. Sorry, that's probably not fair, but. And it certainly would, you know, vary from person to person. Um, I, I think a lot of them, you know, the, the better ones are, don't think they can do anything and they're just going to rock the boat and then get get smacked down by somebody smacked down in the press smacked down by their confreres smacked down even potentially by the vatican lose their positions and so on 
some of them are certainly, you know, on board 100% and, and you know, want to keep uh, pushing the envelope, keep the, the, the destruction of the crisis going because they don't uh, have any love for, for tradition and what it stands for. Right. So we do have those four cardinals, uh, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Kafara, Cardinal Brandmuller, and Cardinal Meisner. Uh, who spoke out against, at least against uh, Maurice Letizia. Um And we have one archbishop who is more recently sounding the alarm as well. Right, archbishop Vigano, uh, the former nuncio to the United States, uh, who has been very direct, very clear. Um, and this is just, you know, within the past uh, year or two that he's uh, he's really become a public figure. Uh, and as, as that things have, time has gone on, we see him saying more and more uh, this, the sort of things that, that even the society has been saying for uh, for a few decades, um, and uh, and he's very clear too that this crisis, as it is is today, comes you know from that that original moment, if you want, of, of Vatican II, where this all broke out into the open. It's not that it, it all started there. It's been you know currents have been running for for centuries as i think we'll see in the in in future uh podcasts but um it all it certainly you know breaks out into the open becomes mainstream is embraced by a large part of the the larger part of the of the church uh, at vatican ii right? and his his summary of the of the origin uh, is is quite excellent you know he says if the pacamama could be adored in a church we owe it to dignitatis humanae Vatican II document on religious liberty. If we have a liturgy that's Protestantized and at times even paganized, we owe it to the revolutionary action of Monsignor Annibale Bonini and to the post-conciliar reforms. If we have come to the point of de delegating decisions to bishops' conferences, even in grave violation of the Concordat, as happened in Italy, we owe it to collegiality and to its updated version, synodality. Thanks to synodality, we have found ourselves with Amoris Laetitia and having to look for a way to prevent what was obvious to everyone from was obvious to everyone from appearing that this document prepared by an impressive organizational machine intended to legitimize communion for the divorced and cohabiting just as Corita Amazonia will be used to legitimize women priests as in the recent case of an Episcopal vicaris in Freiburg and the abolition of and the abolition of sacred celibacy wow if that doesn't sum it all up yep wow and it's, and it's one archbishop. And that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? And I think wow. there's a, there can be the temptation for us to, to sort of, you know, fold our arms and say, well, it's about time other people started showing up to this party. Yeah, um, kind of. But uh, you know, it's something I think that we should avoid. You know, we're, right. the, the more fellow travelers we have, it doesn't matter when they arrive. And, and, but that they understand what's going on, that they're they're willing to, to, to see the crisis for what it is and embrace the truth is absolutely a good thing so so basically to, to, to sum up father we are looking at again it, w whether we talk about these actions as crises or we talk about this act these actions as uh, as uh, um, symptoms of a larger crisis uh, overall the church is almost unrecognizable from what it was 60 years ago it's been turned on its head entirely. We have we have chaos uh, in the hierarchy. We have scandals of all sorts, moral scandals, doctrinal scandals. We have the open contradiction of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, we have the you know the 
surveys we've talked about that indicate the, the loss of faith, the, the lack of practice of the faith, a ever-growing lack of respect for the church's moral teaching. We have a, a fallen vocations, all these things unparalleled in the church's history. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in, in the midst of a, the crisis. There have been other crises in the past, undoubtedly, but nothing on this scale, nothing with this depth, nothing with this much damage. It's it's the greatest that has ever afflicted the church. Yeah. And I think as wow. we'll, we'll see in the... In, you know, in the the uh, future episodes, uh, all of this comes from the disastrous attempt to marry the teaching of the church um, with the thinking of the modern world at Vatican II. Well, that's uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be flipping about it. I'm not trying to be, but uh, this is again, we, this was not supposed to be a cheery episode. This is this is we are laying out. Is there a crisis? And let's make it perfectly clear what we are talking about when we talk about the crisis. It's it's all of these things, um, and I and I really want to just keep talking and and now end the note with, well, let's talk about some of the things that we can do. Um, but Father Franks has said no. Let's just do one episode on what is the crisis. So I think for now we're going to end it here, Father. Yeah. I think we should certainly remember that it is still the uh, the mystical body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He is with it till the end of time. And the church will come through this crisis as well. There you go. Thank you for that. I thank you for giving me that at least at the end, Father. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Father, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. We're going to be uh, we're going to be chatting with you uh, again on future episodes, um, uh, along with some of our other priests. Uh, so thank you again for uh, not just doing this, but for all of your work uh, helping to keep the society afloat and, and tradition going. My pleasure, Andrew. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to and watching this first episode of the Crisis in the Church series. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and our YouTube account so you won't miss our next episode coming next week. We'll be speaking with Father Alexander Wiseman on the background of this crisis, which stretches back to the 1300s, a lot further than the Second Vatican Council. And if you're able to help support this endeavor, please consider a small monthly donation of $5, $10, $20. These recurring donations help us immensely to know that we can count on much-needed resources to produce these videos and podcasts. Just visit sspxpodcast.com for options. Until next time, thank you for listening and for sharing and for your support. And God bless you.